We're delighted today to have with us uh, Dr. J. William Pop, known as Bill, to his friends, and uh, uh, Jean to people who don't know him and try to get him on the phone for telecommunications and solicitations. But uh, Bill has been a, a great uh, 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 friend of the AIDS Clinical Trials Group, but uh, someone who uh, I think, as you'll see, uh, has an immense amount of uh, understanding of what's been going on in the AIDS epidemic in the world, in Haiti in particular. Bill is a uh, graduate of Cornell and a professor there, uh, and uh, after finishing his um, time at uh, Cornell with Warren Johnson, uh, asked Warren Johnson what the most important thing to do in Haiti was, and Warren said, what's killing more people than anything else? And Bill, and, uh, Bill said, infantile diarrhea. So uh, Warren said, we'll go do something about that, uh, and he did. Uh, under uh, Bill's program, which changed the way infantile diarrhea was managed from a hospital-based to a community-based rehydration program, the uh, infantile diarrhea deaths plummeted uh, in the first several years of his uh, establishment of the program. Having taken care of that problem, uh, the next question was, what's the next biggest problem? Tuberculosis. So Bill got heavily involved in tuberculosis and founded Geskio, uh, which uh, he'll tell you more about today uh, in the center of Port-au-Prince. At about the time AIDS came along, uh, having taken on two problems already, Bill said, why not just add AIDS to the list uh, and the impact that he's had on HIV and tuberculosis in Haiti and now STDs uh, has been immense. Uh, he joined the AIDS Clinical Trials Group as uh, a, uh, one of the first international principal investigators at our um, international competition that uh, Doug Richman reviewed about uh, five years ago. Uh, and has put together a stellar unit uh, in downtown Port-au-Prince that uh, does both AIDS clinical trials, uh, does uh, vaccine uh, studies, uh, and does uh, work in prevention. So it's one of the pluripotent sites that uh, has been uh, espoused by the Division of AIDS. So we're really delighted to have Bill with us here on campus today uh, and to have an opportunity to hear uh, his thoughts uh, about uh, the um, uh, impact of HIV in Haiti and the approach to uh, uh, AIDS programs uh, with research as a base. Bill will be giving the, Ngali, the first Ngali Man lecture uh, at the opening session of the um, retrovirus meeting on Sunday, so it's a real honor for us to have uh, an opportunity to have him on uh, campus uh, on the way to uh, Los Angeles. So, Bill, without more ado, thanks very much for coming. Thank you very much, Chip. Uh, delighted to be here. Uh, delighted to be invited by Coney and you and seeing a lot, a lot of familiar faces, uh, including my friend Roberto, uh, that I've worked with in Brazil and at other places. Uh, I'll be telling you briefly about uh, <coughs> this uh, 25 years in Haiti that was long and but went quite fast as well. I'll cover very rapidly the historical international context at the time we started working. Haiti's background, the Haitian study group on opportunistic infection, Kaposi's Sarcoma, Geskio in its mission, the AIDS challenge we faced in 1981, uh, the development of, of the Geskio model and its expansion. What is essential is that research has been the backbone of all the interventions. The international context at that time, uh, if you recall, in 1981, uh, Kaposi, Sarcoma, and PCP were recognized in homosexual, heroinatics, hemophiliacs. One year later, um, the same diseases were found in Haitians. Since Haitians did not belong to any of those risk groups, they were put in a separate category, which is the so-called 
for each disease, homosexual, heroinatics, hemophiliacs, and Haitians. Uh, the origin of, each, of, of AIDS, two places in the developing world were um, publicized at the birthplace of AIDS. Uh, it was Haiti and, and Africa. Haiti was singled out first, and uh, to quote uh, Vieira, unlike the homosexual drug addict, the Haitian was a highly visible victim of the epidemic who could be singled out by virtue of his ethnic and cultural feature. The challenges that we face uh, were formidable, political, economic, cultural, scientific. This is the political background of Haiti uh, since 1980. Uh, we've had the Duvalier regime from 1957 to 1986. Then the 20 years that followed from 1986 to 2006, we had 18 governments. Uh, the country was occupied twice in 1994 and 2004. It's still occupied by foreign troops and there's been uh, uh, quite a lot of violence. So almost one government uh, every year. Uh, this is the population of Haiti, uh, a little over 8 million, uh, life expectancy below 52 years, per capita income uh, below 300, 60% unemployed, very low human development index, the annual health expenditure is only $8, and there are only 2.5 physicians per 10,000 inhabitants. Cultural and social challenges were also important. Uh, when young men and women started dying um, of a disease that Western medicine could not care for, in a country where nobody dies of natural causes, whether you are 100 years old, uh, clearly people felt that there was something uh, particular about this disease and that uh, there was a special curse that uh, they sent on those people. Uh, in addition, with the macho uh, a situation in Haiti, you have men who have contact with multiple sex partners. It's not a situation of women who tend to have serial monogamy. And also contact with commercial sex workers, which at the time had a very high prevalence rate, 42 to 72 percent. Uh, also high rate of sexually transmitted disease and low, low rate of condom use. As you can see, Haiti has, uh, is the most affected country outside of Africa for HIV AIDS. It is also uh, account for 50% of all the HIV AIDS in the Caribbean, which is why the Caribbean is the second region most affected by AIDS. Now, our first mission in 1979 was to determine the causes of infantile diarrhea. Well, we found that the causes were rotavirus, uh, toxigenic E. coli, cryptosporidium. So mission was accomplished. Uh, but actually, we had a formidable challenge because over 40% of all children admitted for diarrheal disease died. And therefore, um, we could not just say, well, we did our work. We had to solve this. And uh, we had to develop guidelines to treat children admitted for diarrhea, workup uh, of the children for fever, found that many of them had meningitis, many of them had malaria, many of them had typhoid fever, and introduced oral graduation therapy, which at the time was in its infancy. Uh, it was not in those really available packets that you can buy in stores. I had to make them from huge gallons of water that I was carrying in my car all the time. But uh, the, the next slide, uh, really tells the whole story. You see in, uh, in orange is the admission curve. In green is the mortality curve. Uh, the arrow is when we started working. And as you can see, the mortality dropped from 44% to less than 1% within a year. Those bumps that you see here is when I had to fulfill my obligation at Cornell. So each time I went, uh, it went up. But uh, uh, what is interesting is that 
within two years, uh, the government of Haiti, uh, based on those results, created a national program and used our unit as a training unit. And we've trained over 14,000 health personnel. We created similar units in each health department. And um, we created mobile team also that we go and supervise that work. It is essentially that same type of setup that we've used for, for HIV, as you will see. Now, the, the beauty about this is that um, in the year 2000, um, from the over 7,000 kids that we used to have in that unit, sometimes up to four kids per bed, uh, we only had 200 children, and the unit was closed. So that, that was the good part about it. And you can see uh, this is the per capita income of Haiti. As you can see, it has not changed <coughs> over 30 years. But this is the infantile mortality. That's when we started working. And it has dropped by two-thirds from uh, 144 per 1,000 to 50 per 1,000. And most of it is felt to be related to that work on uh, rehydration. So we developed this concept that you could identify a public health problem through research, uh, try to find a solution. If you're lucky with that solution, um, with the training capacity, you can uh, make a huge impact on, uh, on healthcare and extend this at the national level. How did we get into AIDS? Well, as we were seen, we are working at the main university hospital. As the expert on diarrheal disease, uh, I was asked to see adult patients who had chronic diarrhea. They turned out to be our first AIDS cases. So GaySQL was created May 2nd, 1982, with a mission of service, training, operational research, not only in HIV, but on diarrheal diseases, other sexually transmitted disease, tuberculosis. Collaboration with Cornell um, was a fact from the beginning, since I was a member of the staff at Cornell. Uh, Vanderbilt played also a major role. French institution, Institut Pasteur, Fondation Merieux, but local institution, the Minister of Health. In fact, uh, when we published the first cases, 61 cases, we realized that we are dealing with a problem, and we asked the Ministry of Health to send somebody uh, also with us uh, to work on this disease, because as you know, it is a very political disease at that time. No country wanted to recognize that they had AIDS, and we wanted to make sure that uh, um, the Ministry didn't think that we are doing anything abnormal. Um, support came from a variety of institutions, depending on whether it's support for care, research, or training. Now this is the GISCU founders. Uh, unfortunately, uh, many of them have died or left the country or retired. Uh, I'm the only one who's unfortunately or unfortunately still around. Uh, now, this is the very first team that worked with us on diarrheal diseases. Uh, this is uh, Marie-Eugénie Beaulieu, who is our head technician up to now. And this is the head nurse, Yoni Cado. So those were my first two employees when I started, and they are still with us at present. Now, this is the first Gisco generation, and you will see that they've been with us for some time. Uh, Marie-Marcel Deschamps since 1984, Rosirene Verdier in 1984, Renaud Grandpierre 1988. Obviously, uh, they've changed a, a bit now. <laughs> now, this is the area where we work. Uh, that's where Gaiskio is located. And those are two major slums called, ironically, City of God and City of Eternity. The entire area is called Kosovo because of the violence uh, in the former Yugoslavia. That's another 
view. This is Geskio here, and that's the, uh, the slums that you see here. Now, this is a map of the UN forces. Uh, and as you can see, in red, you have areas where you should not travel, and as you can see, we're in the middle of the storm. But the beauty about it is that at no point in time was our personnel ever harmed, and in fact, over all those years, they've never stole one single pencil. The scientific challenges that we had to deal with were the following. We had to define the disease. Um, the first 10 years, can the common opportunistic infection be treated? What are the modes of transmission and cofactors? What is the natural history? Then we, make him, we became a little more uh, aggressive, thinking that we could control the epidemic. If we develop a model, can a heart be introduced? And now, even more aggressive, trying to scale this up at the national level. This is the very first paper we published in 1983. Uh, and uh, with me here is Warren Johnson, who's been my mentor when I was in medical school and my friend. Um, that's the first Geshkyo site. This is the first car that we had, uh, which is a 1982 Toyota. And uh, this is the hospital where we admitted our patients. This is a picture of Bernard Lyoto, who is a very fine dermatologist, who is a founding member of Geskio. Uh, he's the one who described the first case of Kaposi's sarcoma, which were totally new in Haiti. And he's also the one who described, for the first time, the sporitic skin lesion called porigo that you see usually in the exposed areas of the body and uh, that really are it's a very early manifestation of HIV AIDS. Bernard now heads the um, hospital in uh, Martinique. The, but the post most pressing clinical issues were coccidia diarrhea because many of those patients uh, were wasting away with that and tuberculosis prevention treatment and screening. This slide depicts uh, the finding in 450 patients with uh, liquid stools, and as you can see, coccidia diarrhea accounted for the majority of cases. Uh, we have described the clinical manifestation, prevention, and treatment of isospora belly in two papers, and we're able to reduce the treatment from uh, four weeks to uh, seven days and two tablets of trametoplim sulfa uh, twice daily. The same for cyclospora. Um, we found that uh, trametoplim sulfa work exactly the same way, stopping the diarrhea within uh, 24 to 48 hours. And at the time when we didn't have antiretroviral, this was already amazing, telling a patient that uh, the diarrhea you've had for 10 months or over a year, we can really take care of it. It was almost magic. Now, for tuberculosis, there are four major questions we are wonder we're wondering about. Uh, one is, can primary TB prophylaxis prevent the development of active TB in those who are co-infected with HIV and TB? Can TB be effectively treated in patients co-infected with HIV? And uh, if there were recurrence, can those occurrence uh, occur more frequently in HIV-positive patients? And uh, can isoniazid prevent uh, recurrences in people who had been treated when used as secondary prophylaxis? And finally, can persons seeking HIV testing be effectively screened for TB? This is uh, the paper where we showed clearly that uh, isoniazid given to individuals who are HIV positive, PPD positive, and asymptomatic had an 83% effect in reducing the occurrence of TB. So that's isoniazid plus vitamin B6 versus vitamin B6 used as placebo. But what we didn't expect is that 
Isoniazid also had an impact on the natural history of HIV, delaying the onset of AIDS in those who receive INH versus those who did not. Uh, we also uh, look at how long should the duration of isoniazid be, and as you can see, uh, those are the ones who got it for six months, for 12 to 24 months, and over 24 months. And as you can see, uh, those who took it for a shorter period had a recurrence occurring much earlier, and uh, the longer they took it, the longer um, uh, it took for the recurrence to occur, to the point that uh, we thought that it should be given for the life of the patient as long as the CD4 count was below 200. Now, could uh, the disease be treated? And those are a number of studies. The, the bottom one is ours, looking at uh, individuals who receive regimen containing rifampicin. As you can see, the mortality rate, uh, the rate of those who abandon and those who change therapy is higher in all the studies. But for those who finally completed treatment, in our case 89% of patients, the cure rate was quite high. Now, those patients were cured, but for how long? This is the next question that we try to, to answer. And clearly you can see that of individuals who were quote-unquote cured, that is who had negative chest x-ray, negative cultures for TB after treatment, um, we only had one out of 200 HIV negative who had a recurrence, uh, whereas 30% uh, of those who, were, who had advanced HIV disease at the time they had tuberculosis had recurrence. But in order to see that, you need to follow those patients for quite some time uh, because the majority of the recurrence started occurring at the second year. Now, the other question we, we try to answer and ask whether isoniazid in those who are HIV positive could prevent recurrence, and as you can see, uh, it does prevent recurrence uh, when you give it a secondary prophylaxis uh, for one year. Now, uh, we are faced with another problem, which is uh, multiple drug resistant tuberculosis. Uh, as expected, uh, we saw a higher rate of MDRTB in patients who had received tuberculosis, therefore in those who have recurrent TB. But we are totally surprised to see that those with primary tuberculosis, uh, HIV positive, have a much higher rate of MDRTB. So this is something that we'll be focusing on uh, for the next five years. The, the other question we ask is, could we screen for TB patients coming to HIV centers for HIV test? And uh, we reason that since TB is uh, transmitted essentially uh, by coughing, we would only screen people who are coughing because we don't want them to spread uh, TB within the waiting room where you have people who are immunocompromised. And what we found, which was astonishing, is that uh, in fact 30% of all patients came for an HIV test. They didn't come for TB. We are coughing had active tuberculosis. So since that time, we've implemented this as a public health measures. All patients with TB and cough are identified the same day, and we're able to place them on treatment and prevent transmission to those in the waiting room. But in addition, since you are able to eliminate active TB, you can place on INH prophylaxis those who do not have active TB uh, to prevent uh, the occurrence of tuberculosis. Now, uh, we are wondering, it's one thing when you do the research, what happens when you put it as a public health measures. 
The, the research was published in 2001, and we look at the situation over the next four years, and as you can see, it has not changed. About 30% of all with cough have active TB. And it's also a great way to identify patients who are HIV negative with tuberculosis since 45% of them had tuberculosis. Uh, we also look at the epidemiology of HIV-AIDS, finding the risk factors uh, for AIDS, the cofactor for transmission, and uh, studying the natural history in adults and kids. This is in front page of Science, 1983. First it killed gay men, then drug addicts, Haitians, hemophiliacs. Now children are dying, and some medical investigators fear the disease could spread to the nation's blood bank. And at the time, no one knew the cause. This is a study we conducted that showed that, in fact, in 1983, 50% of the Haitian population with AIDS were homo or bisexual. In fact, 65% of the males were homo or bisexual, but 49% of the women had received blood transfusion from a commercial blood bank. Now, we knew that there was something in the blood. We didn't know what it was, and we pressured tremendously the Ministry of Health to the point that in 1986, uh, all commercial blood banks were closed, and the Haitian Red Cross was put in charge of all blood banking operations. So if you ask, what is the single measure that probably helped most controlling HIV-AIDS in Haiti, it is the fact that we are able to control very early the blood supply. Now, what is interesting also is the fact that very quickly we moved from a homo-bisexual risk group to a heterosexual risk group. At the time, if you recall, nobody thought that it could be transmitted by heterosexual contact. Uh, drug addiction is not a major problem, as you can see. Um, in Haiti, uh, we used the French system, so therefore there were no sexually transmitted disease clinic. Uh, somebody with STD, so the dermatologist. So we opened the first STD clinic in Haiti, and we are surprised to find that of uh, pregnant women uh, attending our antenatal clinic, uh, about half in urban areas and one-third in rural areas had at least one sexually transmitted infection. Uh, we also look at cofactors for transmission and found that um, in um, the HIV-negative partner of the discordant couple, uh, genital ulcer carried the seven times risk of transmitting HIV. Uh, the other STI also had a high risk. And that condom was protective. So we used those for edu educational purpose and uh, uh, invited many uh, prevention groups to be aware of the, that data and, uh, and use it. What we did also is that we develop uh, algorithm for the treatment of sexually transmitted disease a clinical algorithm without having to use laboratory tests. And uh, we've been able to uh, train physicians to use those, and they are used throughout Haiti. And as you can see at our site, uh, the decrease in uh, genital disease uh, in men in green, in women in red, and in both in, uh, in black. The same for chancoid which has almost disappeared in uh, our population. Now, what is the natural history of HIV infection? There are five countries that have studied this from the time people were infected to the time they died. And as you can see, from infection here to AIDS, it takes about three years. 
and then uh, to death, it's about seven years. So it's quite fast, and TB is the most common pre-AIDS manifestation, and the most common illness or wasting syndrome, candidus vaginitis, coccidia diarrhea, a leading cause of death, wasting syndrome, TB, cryptomeningitis, and toxoplasmosis. Now, this is what happens when you provide ART. You reverse the trend uh, 100%. Instead of having 90% died, you have 90% surviving at one year, despite advanced HIV disease, high rate of TB, and severe malnutrition. Same situation in Chilean. This is a curve uh, in the pre-art era, and those are Haitian children, both in Miami and Haiti, so it's not a genetic problem that you're having. Uh, already at that time, you see by one year, the majority of Haitian children in Haiti uh, born to HIV-infected mothers died. Uh, we look at risk factors for mortality. We found that obviously HIV infection, uh, trimethoprim sulfa, and maternal death uh, played a major role because when the mother is no longer there in a place like Haiti, um, it compromised tremendously the survival of the kids. This is a situation with Bactrim. Um, and uh, here you see those who had a complete dose of Bactrim, those who did not take it at all, and those who took it on an intermittent basis. What was striking is that it affected both HIV-positive and HIV-negative children. Now, this is the outcome. This is a paper that was just accepted in GID of 236 children uh, that receive ERT. As you can see, 81% are alive at 24 months. And um, of those who died, 71% uh, of the deaths occur within the first six months. And the predictor of mortality, as expected, were young age, uh, low CD4 count, and uh, poor weight. Uh, another thing we felt was important is the incorporation of uh, family planning in the PMTCT program. Uh, Marie-Marcel Deschamps at our place has been leading this effort, and uh, we encourage uh, counseling uh, to prevent STD and uh, encourage family planning in all men and women. We offer HIV and syphilis testing for both men and women, so whenever we offer HIV testing, we couple it with syphilis testing. And we offer a contraceptive method for HIV-positive women. And we found that, indeed, those women, if you offer a contraceptive method, they will use it. We've been able to reduce the pregnancy rate in HIV-positive women from 24% per year to 4% per year. And we feel that, in many ways, better than AZT because uh, they have a choice of not having a child that will create problem for them uh, later on. This slide depicts the various interventions that we've used. Uh, first of all, back treatment formula, decreasing uh, the mortality sum, ART for mothers with AIDS, but what was most significant is when we introduced PCR and, um, and adapted pre-P24 for the early diagnosis of ART in, in babies and introduced ART. Congenital syphilis, uh, we think that in countries like Haiti, we should use the HIV effort to eliminate a number of diseases. Uh, congenital syphilis is one of them, and I think that we have a real opportunity to eliminate congenital syphilis in Haiti. Uh, as you know, it's the leading cause of perinatal and antenatal deaths in most of the developing world. Uh, we don't think about it, we focus on HIV, but this is also a major killer. Despite effective screening methods, only 30% of pregnant women are screened for syphilis in sub-Saharan Africa, 20% in Haiti. This, was, this is no longer the case. Uh, now we are screening more towards 
we are reaching for 100% and 17% in Bolivia. Um, there have been some very important interventions in Haiti. One is decentralized syphilis testing. Then Fitzgerald in a rural hospital, De Chapelle, has shown clearly that if you decentralize uh, syphilis testing at the time with RPR, you can reduce tremendously uh, the rate of congenital syphilis in that population. We are one of the six WHO centers uh, in the world looking at um, the development of new a rapid test for STD and syphilis in particular. And there is a new rapid test, uh, those are the publication on it, that you can use that uh, is very quick. You have the results within 15 minutes. And that can be done on whole blood and that doesn't need to be done by qualified technician. So we think that this will revolutionize uh, the diagnosis of, of uh, syphilis. And the third thing is to couple HIV testing with syphilis testing. Uh, needless to say that uh, there was a television crude from the BBC that came to Haiti uh, about uh, a year ago to um, at least document cases of congenital syphilis and for the whole time they were there, uh, which is a week and a half, we were, able, we were unable to find one single case. Um, in uh, the 20 years that preceded, we used to see at least 10 cases per day, so uh, in our hospital alone. Uh, the government support has been very important. There is no way we could have worked in Haiti without government support. And this slide here shows at the inauguration of the first vaccine trial to be conducted in the Caribbean, March 20, 27, 2001. All the ministers of health and president of the Haitian Medical Society for the 10 years that preceded that trial. Now I can tell you that many of those people don't like each other. Uh, and uh, I can tell you what I did to, to get them to come. But it is important that they wanted to be there because they, they took a great part in it. And uh, I think without government support, there is no way that we would have been able to do what we are doing. Uh, we've conducted uh, four HIV vaccine trials and we're preparing for fifth one. Uh, what is significant is that the retention rate has been 100%. Uh, we just finished this trial, which is the largest. Um, we are the largest site with uh, uh, 326 uh, high-risk uh, volunteers enrolled, and the retention rate has been for all this trial uh, 100%. But we can go in the question and answer period why we think that we've been successful with the retention rate. Um, we've also helped other sites in the Caribbean, uh, the Dominican Republic, we, we trained their, their people so they've been able to develop that site and also the site in Jamaica, those are very fine sites and we're very happy uh, of the work that they are doing there. Uh, similarly, uh, the CTG has been very, very important and uh, to provide the capacity building and also more so than the VTN, uh, the type of rigor that's needed uh, in clinical trials and uh, many of our physicians indicated on their own why can't we use this for patient care. So it, it has really helped a lot and those are uh, some of the studies. This one is, has been completed. This one um, has just been initiated. This one is, uh, it is infancy. We're also conducting a CIPRA project uh, whose primary aim is to look at the best time to start antiretrovirals. 
comparing U.S. and European standards at 350 versus uh, WHO standard at 200, and looking at endpoint uh, mortality. Uh, there is a, a study, a pharmacological study that we did uh, with the University of Virginia to look at the effect of tropical AIDS diarrhea on ARV absorption, and that study is completed, and in fact, uh, diarrhea has no impact on ARV absorption. <coughs> that's, that's the message, which is very nice to hear. Uh, ethics is essential. Uh, there is no way you can do good research, particularly in a place like Haiti, without really doing uh, good ethics. So I'll, I'll mention perhaps uh, two of the major publications we've had, uh, comprehension during informed consent in the less developed country. Essentially what we do is that uh, before somebody gets involved in any kind of trial, uh, we make sure that the psychologist, uh, the PI, and um, the person in charge of regulatory uh, determine what are the key questions that that person should know. So we, we develop a questionnaire of what the person should know. And then we have uh, social workers who train the volunteers in um, three-hour sessions, uh, one hour apart, uh, to inform them. And then there is another team, totally unrelated, that gives them a formal exam. They have to take that exam and pass with flying colors, at least 90%. If they don't, they can apply again. If they don't pass the second time, uh, it's over. Uh, so before they sign anything, they have to go through this. And I can tell you, it's very assuring. I know for sure that those people are fully informed, and they're very proud also of the fact that they can answer all those questions. Some of them feel very poorly that they fail, but uh, there's nothing we can do about it. The, the second one, which is important, is provision of treatment in HIV vaccine trials in developing countries. Uh, we've been able to uh, convince the HVTN leadership of the need to, provop, to, to provide antiretrovirals to volunteers who would get infected during an HIV vaccine trial. We thought that this was fair. And uh, since that publication, it has been now impossible to conduct HIV vaccine trial in setting where ARV would not be offered. Uh, so through the research part, we've developed this GSCO prevention and care model, which involves pretesting counseling for HIV, syphilis, TB, and we've added malaria recently. Uh, STR management, same day. Post-HIV exposure counseling in art, particularly for personnel exposed to contaminated blood, and mostly rape victims. Unfortunately, we've been seeing quite a lot of them with the new violence that we've had over the past five years. Um, we also offer uh, reproductive health services, family planning, prenatal care, and uh, ART for uh, HIV-infected uh, women, particularly those who are pregnant, uh, post-test counseling, uh, and care for HIV-infected individuals and the affected family, because uh, it's a very much family disease-oriented uh, institution that we have because the disease we care for are transmitted within the family. We offer opportunistic infection treatment prophylaxis, ART, the CD4 count is below 200, nutritional support, psychological support, and in some cases even home care. Now, uh, this is what I indicated with the training. The same thing we did for the diarrhea effort. Um, since 2000, we've trained over 11,000 persons in various categories, laboratory technicians, social workers, nurses, physicians, pharmacists, uh, community leaders. And uh, 
that has helped a lot. Uh, the expansion program. This is the map of Haiti. Uh, this is where we are located here. And the way we had developed the expansion plan is that uh, the Red Star are what we call centers of excellence. And around the centers are peripheral centers under the influence of the center of excellence. Um, we care for uh, 30 sites of the 73 sites that offer voluntary counseling and testing. And of the 30 ERT sites, um, we are in charge of 14, plus the eight sites uh, run by Management Science for Health and Catholic Relief Service. The only sites that uh, we don't interfere with are the site of Partners in Health that are in the Central Plateau, although we also supervise uh, one of them here. Uh, the mobile teams, multidisciplinary mobile team, have been essential because in Haiti we are unable to use a teleconference. Uh, telephone don't work very well, so having uh, that team go on site not only to bring supplies but also uh, to provide additional training. And this is a lab supervision visit. On site training. Now, for 2006, in our own network alone, not the national network, uh, we've uh, tested over 100,000 people, identified almost 9,000. Uh, almost the same were tested for syphilis, identified 5,000. Uh, we've tested over 25,000 pregnant women for both, treated over f almost 14,000 cases of STI, a 78th episode of OI, and place. Uh, 4,700 people on art. We've been involved, uh, the Minister of Health uh, and other institution called Institution Enfance, IHE, and GISCU, in those national prevalence survey for HIV and syphilis. The red curve is the one for HIV, as you can see. Uh, those are on women, uh, pregnant women attending their first antenatal visit nationwide. And as you can see, uh, it has decreased from 6.2% in 1993 to 3.1% with a similar decrease for syphilis. Now, since they said, well, uh, women didn't represent uh, the population, why don't you do a demographic health survey involving men and women? And that's what we did last year. Uh, and as you can see, the prevalence is even lower. It's 2.2%. But the the bad part is that in urban areas, it is higher, 2.7% in women, compared to men, 1.6%. And there is a trend that it may go in the same direction for rural areas. Uh, the NIH has uh, encouraged us to create uh, some research effort in the region. And we created last year what is called the Trans-Caribbean HIV AIDS Initiative, CHARI, which involve uh, the founders are people from Haiti, people from Jamaica, uh, Trinidad and Tobago, uh, the Dominican Republic, and uh, Puerto Rico. But what it is open really to all countries in the region. And uh, we have two studies that uh, we just initiated one that will take place at eight sites that will look at ART outcome in the various countries. And the other one is an ART cost analysis, uh, looking uh, at richer countries like Puerto Rico and Martinique 
uh, compared to Haiti. We have a paper that was just submitted uh, that shows the ERT cost in Haiti is a bit under $1,000 per year for everything. So this is my last slide. Uh, in 1982, uh, we recognized AIDS in Haiti and created a comprehensive research, service, and training program. From 1983 to the present, we've had NIH support um, that helped research and training, and not only on HIV AIDS, but on TB and STI, that provided capacity building for the development of an integrated model of prevention and care, and also for large-scale training. The extension of services nationwide was made possible with support from the Global Fund against AIDS, TB, and malaria, and PEPFAR. So in 2006, uh, the National Network for HIV Testing and Counseling uh, had 79 sites, 30 in our own network, with over 1,000 persons tested in 2006 in our own network. ERT scale up to 30 sites, 14 at the GISCO, um, Ministry of Health Network, and 10,000 in the entire country, about half at our sites. National seroprevalence have decreased by half. Hence, research projects can have a national impact on the difficult situations. These accomplishments were the result of synergism between research training and clinical care. Thank you. I think it should be obvious uh, why there was not uh, too much debate about who the opening and golly man lecture should be uh, at, the, um, at the meeting bill. Um, exemplifies what the lecture was set up to do, which is to show how uh, the integration of all of the moving parts that he talked about has an impact that is logs more important uh, than separate activities going on in parallel that don't interact. Uh, Bill is a very uh, modest guy. One of the things he didn't tell you is that the ACTG's uh, international uh, mother-to-child transmission prevention studies are a direct result of, of Bill's um, uh, ability to, uh, to prod the process behind the scenes. Um, he was concerned when Tuckfar arrived in Haiti uh, and began to push single-dose deverapine uh, as its only approach to preventing transmission of uh, HIV from infected women and children that uh, there had been some literature that this might cause resistance and might be a problem. Uh, at the time, the uh, implementologists were very upset about heresy like this because the party line was the resistance is only temporary and it's not uh, not an issue, don't worry about it, and talking like this is only going to make it harder to do our prevention programs. So Bill um, um, argued with them a bit and uh, was obviously getting uh, very little traction with it. Uh, and at one of the ACG uh, meetings in uh, Baltimore, leaned over to, uh, to me and said, you know, this is a, a real problem. Uh, somebody needs to do some research on this. Uh, and uh, we said, doesn't sound like a bad idea. We've tried to uh, get the NIH to let us do this and have not had much success. But if you wrote a letter to Tony uh, and copied Sandy about the fact that you think it's a problem, my bet is something will happen. So Bill did that. And uh, Sandy Lehrman then convened a meeting that included, uh, for the first time in the same room, uh, people like Bill who had read the literature uh, and the implementologists to uh, discuss uh, the fact that uh, a, uh, we need rigorously to determine the impact of this approach uh, to, uh, to prevent uh, transmission. It caused all kinds of sparks because the people who were doing implementation were very upset that uh, this was even being discussed. In fact, one of the people who had just been appointed uh, to 
run one of the CDC programs turned to me and said, it's a shame that people like Dr. Pop are causing problems like this uh, because it's just going to be uh, a real issue for uh, people who are trying to get this done. And uh, I said to him, uh, what you're doing is noble. Uh, the fact that you're actually trying to do something in places where people had thought nothing could be done is very important. But you also have a responsibility to look over the horizon. And that's what Bill's trying to do, to make it possible for you to do the next intervention. And if this causes the kind of problems that, that Bill is concerned about, and you haven't even thought about it, the next time you have a great idea, people are going to say, look what you did last time. This is actually enabling you rather than getting in the way. And from that uh, meeting, uh, ACG 5208, uh, which now uh, is uh, uh, enrolling very rapidly, uh, looking at whether women who have been treated with nevirapine respond better to nevirapine-based regimen or a Kaletra-based regimen, and whether or not if there's failure, a, a changeover, uh, from a uh, nevirapine regimen to a Kaletra regimen uh, is a better strategy than starting with all Kaletra. Uh, has now enrolled uh, about uh, not quite half of its 640 women uh, in a, uh, countries that range from Sub-Saharan Africa to Haiti. And 5207, the one that uh, is looking at different ways to cover the nevirapine tail in women who receive single-dose nevirapine, is a study that uh, principal investigators in Haiti uh, are uh, uh, have, have written the protocol and are providing the protocol leadership for. So Bill exemplifies what uh, we had hoped the ACG International Program would do, which is to see a problem, ask a question, write a protocol, and change policy. So with, uh, without any more diarrhea from me, uh, let me uh, uh, ask those of you in the audience uh, if you'd like to uh, ask questions or, or, or comments for Bill. Yes. Susan, then we'll go. What, what's the utilization of condoms? your population? How effective? Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. Uh, in fact, I had a slide on condom that I, I didn't bring. Uh, what is the utilization of condom? Uh, at first, it was almost zero. And personally, I didn't think that it was going to be successful. But there is an agency called PSI. So if you hear about that agency, uh, make sure that they have the opportunity to work. They are excellent. They were able to commercialize uh, a brand name condom at a very low cost. And within three years, they were selling 15 million condom. So uh, it can be done. Uh, if you know the tools, uh, obviously we'd like to have more condom uh, being sold, but at least of one brand condom, we have 15 million. It's estimated that there is under 15 million that's distributed, and probably there is about 5 million other brand of condom that, that is being used. Uh, so overall, I think uh, Haiti used more condom than uh, any other country in the region. Perhaps it's because they are more sexually active, I don't know. But uh, in, in any case, uh, we, we've, looked at, we've looked at it also according to the age groups. Um, the age group that we are most concerned about is not using enough condom. It's the adolescents. And uh, it's uh, estimated that uh, at least 55% of the adults uh, are using condom with a ca casual partner. But with the adolescent, it's down to 10%. So. Yes, in the back. I have a Okay, let me tell you uh, the full story. 
uh, <coughs> that perhaps will make it interesting. There is a journalist called Nina Bernstein from the New York Times that wrote an article uh, to destroy us. Essentially, she indicated that we were letting people, uh, discordant people, become infected. We were not informing them, which obviously was not correct, but we are not doing uh, anything of the, the dimension of what I'm mentioning now. So uh, we had two choices, either continue doing what we are doing, and we said, well, you know, maybe she has a point. Uh, why can't we do it even better? And um, that's when we thought about it, and we developed this system where we could actually evaluate uh, not only the knowledge of the volunteer, but their desire to take part. In fact, I think that by having such high standards, you can make sure that the retention rate will be high because you are really enrolling people who are highly motivated because to come back and take an exam and you know, go through all that preparation for uh, um, knowing more about that trial, you have to have some strong motivation. And we do, when we look at their motivation, uh, it was extremely high. So uh, I think the basis essentially was to develop the best possible standard for informed consent. And uh, after we did that, we invited the team at the Hastings Center uh, to come down and see uh, whether we could improve it furthermore. But they, they said that it was okay. They thought that uh, we are doing much more than was being done in the U.S. And that uh, at this point, it was okay. Now, the problem is that if you're enrolling a large volume of patients, um, it is very time-consuming. So we just published another paper uh, show, showing that using a video um, that's adapted for that particular trial, you can actually uh, save a lot of time and enroll many more people uh, doing this. But still, the one-to-one -one part uh, contact in place like, like Haiti is important. Chris and then Roberta. Uh, two questions. One has to do with isoniazid prophylaxis. A lot of physicians in developing countries seem to be very reluctant to use it because of the limited ability to rule out active tuberculosis. <laughs> so how did you deal with it? How do you rule out active tuberculosis? Though? And then the second question has to do with toxicity of <coughs> antiretrovirals. And this decentralized program in a country with so few physicians, presumably the monitoring is being done by nurses. Okay. Okay. Uh, the first question relates to uh, isoniazid. How do you decide that person that are going to be placed on isoniazid do not have active tuberculosis? Obviously, this is a major concern that we have. But as I indicated early on, we evaluate people fully by doing a PPD test. Only those who are PPD positive will receive isoniazid, but they need to have sputum, a sputum, a three sputum that are negative, but a totally normal chest X-ray. So we rely heavily on the chest X-ray, and so far, by using the chest X-ray, as because as you know, many of the HIV positive patients will have negative sputum, uh, either by smear or culture. So we rely heavily on the chest X-ray, particularly making sure that they don't have any hyaluronopathy. Uh, they may have nothing on the parenchyma, but have nodes uh, or early nodes. So if the X-ray is completely clean, 
um, we put them on it. Uh, usually what we find, people who are totally asymptomatic, because TB is one of the early presentation, if you use people who are totally asymptomatic, you rarely will find people who have active tuberculosis. So that's for the first question. The second question relates to how do we monitor toxicity uh, in patients receiving antiretrovirals. Uh, we have a paper that we are about to submit um, looking at uh, liver toxicity in patients we see in our regimen that we use, our first-line regimen, AZT, um, Combivir plus Nevirapine or Combivir plus uh, Efavirenz. Uh, we were surprised to find almost no toxicity, and we've looked at 4,000 patients. Um, so we think that in places like Haiti where cost is going to be important uh, for scale-up, there was not one single time that the liver function tests help us either stop the drug or change the medicine. And we also look at specifically at people who receive both antiretrovirals and also uh, anti-TB drugs. Um, there was only one case, uh, but that subsided, and we, we were able to continue using both drugs. So uh, the situation for developing countries, and I talked to Peter Mugini in Uganda, and he didn't document this in, in a paper, but he said, you know, I've never seen cases of uh, hepatitis. So we are looking now at uh, kidney failure or kidney abnormalities, and uh, I don't think that we'll find many either. Perhaps what we tend to find more are anemia uh, related to AZT. Uh, but perhaps if you do it once, you don't need to to keep doing it uh, if the hemoglobin goes up. And uh, we're also looking at CD4 count. In my own personal experience, I have usually relied more on the patient's symptoms and in his weight in particular. If his weight is stable, um, usually uh, the CD4 count is okay. So um, we have to think of this because those programs, as you know, PEPFAR is going to end in two years. Uh, the Global Fund, nobody knows how long it will continue. So countries that receive most of their support from the international community have to find ways to reduce costs and be more efficient if they are going to survive in providing large-scale uh, antiretrovirals. Roberto? Bill, uh, along this line of tuberculosis, uh, you mentioned that MTR is in one of the priorities. Have you looked at I was thinking, have you look about it, the XDR-TB is extremely important. Yes, uh, very, very <laughs> we, we have a couple of uh, XDR-TB also associated with HIV-infected patients. Now, we do not know why. Um, the theory that we have is that perhaps HIV-positive patients, before they come to us, go to various clinics and... Uh, they get to sit next to other people who are coughing and probably they are acquiring this um, and per perhaps they get partly treated. Uh, but those are people that we are seeing for the first time who had never received full-course TB treatment before. So we are, we are worried about this, but we will be conducting with the support of the Biomere Foundation a nationwide study on MDR-TB and XDR-TB. I'd like to thank the CIFAR for support for Bill's uh, arrival. Well, thanks very much for coming. Thank you, Bill, for the... Thank you.